Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 11th, 2014, and for the first time in a while on the air anyway, it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, we are back to our reg regularly scheduled programming at least for a while, because I am going on vacation this month so that I don't, like, I don't know, climb up on top of a building and jump and plummet to my death from stress. That's really not that bad. But I, it is time for an actual vacation, not a working trip with a little bitty vacation bolted into it. It is time for a true sit-on-my-butt-on-the-beach-with-my-wife vacation. That's what we're going to do later this uh, month. For with you that, though, we have quite a bit of programming to put out for you including today's show, which is a listener call show. This is where you make a phone call. You pick up your phone and you hit the numbers 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. For those without letters on your dialer, for whatever reason, that's 866-658-4465, 866-658-4465. You leave me your comment or question, Do that in two minutes or less and try to do it in 30 seconds and then give me details after it and you'll be a lot more likely to get on the air. Call from a quiet area if you're using your cellular phone. Call at a time where you can look at it and see a few bars on it and not cut out on me. Anyway, uh, before we get into your call today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Fortress Defense Consultants. Hey, check out Fortress Defense and Frank Sharp Jr. for amazing training with your firearms. We're going to even have a firearms training question today that I think, uh, you know, maybe we'll get Frank's opinion on in a follow-up at some point because I'm going to give my opinion on it today. Frank's an amazing guy with an amazing staff, an amazing cadre of instructors. Every single person that's uh, taken his course uh, out of uh, the audience and has gotten back to me has said that he's absolutely one of the best firearms instructors they've ever worked with, and his staff is amazing. Check him out today at FortressDefense.com. And remember, if you can't get up to where Frank's at, you put together a group of guys, he'll come to you and talk training at a local range or even on your own property if that works out best for you. Next up today, J.M. Bullion. Hey, um... I don't know if you've paid attention, but for like the last hundred plus years, the uh, the people that run our monetary supply have been able to devalue our money by about 97%. 97%. That means if you had a dollar in your hand in 1913, today that dollar is effectively three pennies. And let's be honest, it's more like two and a half. Because that 3% number has been bantered around for a while. Do you know what the plan is? Do you know what the grand plan is from these people? Keep doing the same thing. Keep doing the same thing. That's, that's the plan. Well, let's not talk about hyperinflation. Let's not talk about Weimar Republics. It's just the plan is to continue to devalue the dollar for eternity. So maybe part of your investment portfolio should have something in it that has lasting value, like silver and gold. The place that I would go right now, if I needed to buy some silver or gold, jambullion.com. Why? If there's a problem... I can talk to the president. I don't have to talk to him often, but if there's a shipping mix-up or something, I can talk to him. That means if it happens to you, I can talk to him for you. Why? How about their pricing's better than Monix and Atmex, probably the two biggest sellers in the game. Better pricing, better service, flat organization, direct access to the top. This is the people I want to do business with. These are people that I'm glad to have as sponsors of the show, jambullion.com. Next up, our discount vendor of the day. How about TSP Gear? Remember, we have a TSP Gear Shop. We have cool t-shirts, we have cool tools, we have cool patches, 
MSB members, you get 10% off all gear at tspgear.com. If you've never been to tspgear.com, guys, do me a favor. Check it out today, tspgear.com. Next up, Member Support Brigade. Okay, i got to tell you guys, I'm sorry. I ran a sale yesterday. Somehow, when I set the discount coupon up for you, um, a lot of people emailed me late yesterday and said it said expired. I don't know what the hell happened. I have fixed it. From now until the 20th of uh, April, uh, we are running a sale. First year of MSB for 30 bucks. discount code SPRING14, S-P-R-I-N-G-1-4, SPRING14. I uh, also want to remind you guys, yesterday we did a show, Doc Bones and Nurse Amy and their Kickstarter. Uh, I really want to see them get that thing funded. Uh, they're only about, I think, $3,000 away right now from getting full funding on their survival board game. Consider getting on over to Kickstarter and helping them out. Uh, do consider joining the member support brigade, too, while that sale's running on. Uh, those of you guys in the military, law enforcement, all that stuff, if you have not joined yet and you're going to join now, take the deal with the sale price, cancel your auto renewal, And next year, get with me at renewal time and get the military discount because this is a better discount than I even give to military and law enforcement. All right, with that, let's get into the year that was the episode. It is 1332, a long, long time ago. And again, no, that's a different, that's a different thing. No, 1332 and the Black Death breaks out in China. The great Khan is dead and his long line of heirs go with him. Although it is not certain, it is possible that the death of Yatura Tug Timur, I guess that's how you say his name, was due to the Black Death. The timeline is sketchy, exactly when the outbreak of the plague started in China. But when an entire family drops dead suddenly, and the contemporary historians are saying the plague started around that time, one makes the connection. Chroniclers of the time suggest extreme weather and earthquakes caused the release of Misama. But we know now the so-called Misama was the plague, There will be a few more years until the plague reaches Europe, and then it will move like wildfire. My take by Alex Shrugged. My connotation, uh, connection at Texas A&M, A&M Atmospherics Department said he saw, quote, nothing that rose above the general no noise, unquote, such as unusual volcanic activity. We must rely on second-hand accounts written long after the events occurred, but we can make some reasonable guesses. For example, the outbreak in Turkmenistan, From 1949 to 1950, was preceded by an earthquake, forcing certain plague-carrying animals from their normal wilderness habitat into populous areas. Plague fleas jumped into the city, rat population, the plague started. It's possible the chronicles were generally correct, and we can ignore the embellishments. Um, yeah, possible. Uh, here's the deal I see, though. So the cons, the great hordes, they amassed... They moved to the to the to the west. They came out of the east and they attacked. They got all the way to Germany. They disrupted things, but they extended their empire. They were beaten back, and Europe lived on, withstood the onslaught, and the Mongols went back to doing their thing in the east. Well, what eventually gets the Mongols? It's a disease. And what's coming that you will not stop, you know, like the Polish-Russian border, Germany area, the, the, the part that you will just not be able to negotiate with, the attacker that you cannot sign a treaty with, is a disease, an illness. And there's a lesson there. It's one of the bigger threats that we need to be concerned with. 
You can't manage your way out of a disease. You can't negotiate with a disease. Now, there's modern practices that make diseases less vicious or easier to control or things like that. But when you get one that's breaking the rules, there's nothing you can do other than try to find a new way to deal with it. And in the meantime, a lot of people can get sick and a lot of people can die. And the only proven way to prevent the spread of disease is to stop the spread of people that are carrying the disease or, and or animals. Quarantine. Should we ever end up in that position, it might be a good idea to be able to wait things out in our homes or at a bug out location or something else. But it's certainly not something that you can just say, well, I'll go where I want to because the disease doesn't care about your politics or your opinions or your wealth, your status, your patriotism, which flag you fly. Diseases don't care. They just are. And it will be disease that will do to Europe what the Mongols were never able to do. In effect, it will be disease that will conquer Europe in the coming years. That's something we should all learn from. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take your first call of the day. Hey, Jack. This is Matt, Louisiana. I had a question about uh, remote fog-out locations after listening to the show. Um, living in Louisiana, we have a lot of waterways, and I was wondering what your opinion was on living on various types of waterways, one being coastal lines that's susceptible to hurricanes more, um, natural waterways that have navigation abilities, and then something more along of a private lake. Um, so I wonder what your thought were. Thank you. Okay, so this is like one of those things that everybody has an opinion on, and they're either 100% in or 100% out most of the time. And it's it's kind of a theme that's come up this week where I've, I've tried to get across that every single choice has strengths and weaknesses, unless the choice is I'm going to stand in the middle of I-30 at rush hour on the yellow lines, uh, giving the, the leeward traffic the bird with both hands, and then I'm going to start running around in circles screaming, I can fly, I can fly, and I intend to live. Right, that that would be a choice that doesn't have strengths and weaknesses. There's no strength in that choice. That would be a really stupid thing to do. But when it comes down to actually making realistic choices, where do we live? Where do I locate my bug out location? What do I carry in my bug out bag? What do I keep in my vehicle kit? What kind of gun do I carry? What kind of gun do I hunt with? What where do I buy a house? What type of house do I buy? What kind of heating do I have in my? All of these things. There's almost never like it's it's good or bad. It's here's the good and here's the bad. And you covered a lot of what I would tell you to analyze, right? So to me, the biggest concern in living on a body of water is flooding. That's I don't even care if it's a coast and, well, it's a hurricane. Well, the biggest problem with hurricanes is generally been flooding. So as soon as you have a flood mitigation strategy and flood insurance – I don't have a problem anymore with that, other than you do need to think about it. Uh, I also said this week, I think, it's either this week or last week, and one way or another, it's absolute fact, when it comes to weather-caused deaths, regardless of the thing that generates it, flooding kills more people every year than anything else. Flooding is the number one way by which people meet their death. So we got to think about the flooding issue. We solve that. Then we can start looking at, well, what are the strengths? A private lake, source of water and probably food, 
but it doesn't take you anywhere. But the other thing is it doesn't bring anything to you. I have also no problem with people that live on lakes that aren't private. So as long as they're large or let's say they're small and they're semi-private. In other words, like if you have a lake that's like uh, 30 acres and you and uh, 15 other people or even 30 other people border that lake and that lake is for your community, to me it's still a private lake, but it's not like I own it, right? It's 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 for the use of others, and anybody that has a friend over can use it and whatever. I, I think that is a step above, you know, a public lake. But I don't have a problem with using that either. I mean, I think that one of the things that we really need to think about when we're evaluating land choices for ourselves is how much land do we want to actually be responsible for taking care of? Because living on a large body of water makes it like you have a much larger piece of land, but you don't have to take care of it. Um, if I have a dock that I can set up a feeder on, and I've got a ready, ready supply of fish, there's a lot of value in that to me. If I can put a boat in the water, and I can go exploring, and especially if I'm on a lake where uh, some of the land is public land that's not easily accessible unless you're in a boat, that has advantages too. When you look at Louisiana, you get in a lot of places where you have these canals and bayous and things like that. I think that as long as you can deal with the the flood the flooding concerns, is almost ideal. Uh, there's so much food availability in a swamp. If I lived in Louisiana or Florida swamplands, it would be I would probably spend a lot less effort with livestock and growing my own food because there's so much available from frog gigging to fishing to just general hunting and much of that land for all intents and purposes might as well be public land because all of the navigable waterways are usable by anybody. So if I can put a boat in it and I can get there without going across somebody else's land, I can go there and that land there are, millions of acres that nobody has a house nobody controls it's just open and the usage of it comparative to the size is is very small so there is a tremendous advantage to that type of, of lifestyle now people ask me when i put a swale in about mosquitoes and i ugh, roll my eyes and i don't even want to answer it anymore but you do have a mosquito concern in those environments so you have an, an uh, you know a potential for illnesses as well that are spread by mosquitoes so that's a concern it doesn't mean you don't live there it does mean that you address that concern uh and th at least think about it and consider it overall water's a good thing overall water's a good thing in any form whether it's a lake a stream a river a pond uh, a big lake an ocean to me It is a very, very desirable thing to a piece of property. We just have to evaluate how it fits in with our lifestyle. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, recently, there's been a, a larger, I guess, movement or speculation that uh, one of the bigger reasons why the uh, school system in the United States has kind of started to fall is mainly due to creationists or really what they mean is Christians. I uh, wanted to get your thoughts on that. I know uh, uh, prominent figures like Bill Nye and Bill Maher are more outspoken about it. Uh, just wanted to get your thoughts. Um, I'm both a geologist and a Christian, so I'm, I go back and forth, and I can see both points, but 
Anyways, that's all I wanted to know. Appreciate it. So bye. Well, I, I think the assertion that it's 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 Christians that have ruined um, public schools is asinine. It's just this is ridiculous. Um, and, and I say this as a person who is not a Christian. Uh, I say this as a person who has a, probably, if you are a Christian, a, probably a different view of the origin of human beings than than you do. But I think to blame anything at all about our public school system on the creation versus evolution debate is just stupid. And I think it's 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 nothing but once again, what can we get the people to pay attention to? It's theater. It's nonsense. It's crap. So. Here's why I say that. So I have two reasons, and we'll start out with the the basic logical reason that I think most people that don't have their head up their fourth point of contact would would accept as reality. So when we look at the educational system, there was one little sliver of education, and and usually it's in biology, which kids don't take every year, by the way, that talks about the origins of life. And at that point, we get into a big old hairy debate on whether evolution or creation or intelligent design or what have you is a thing. And it seems that it's like nobody that's really involved in that debate can just pull back and go, you know what, how, how about this? How about we just tell the kids the three theories, let them talk to their parents, figure this out for themselves, and go on with life. Okay? And we'll say... This is, and then from that point on, we're teaching basic science. And if you don't like it because of your faith, tough. This is a public school, and we'll get to that in a second, okay? But seriously, I mean, like, do we really need to make a big deal out of this? But let's say we do. Let's say this is a critical thing. This is really as important as everybody makes it out to be, that you can't influence your child's faith or lack thereof on your own because the magical man at school is so powerful that they can put something in your kid's head that overrides your ability to communicate with your kid. Let's pretend you're that weak as a parent. Let's pretend you're that sad and that weak as a parent that one teacher can tell a kid one thing and erase everything that you've tried to do and it's really their fault. Let's pretend that's the case. Let's present, pretend it really is a big a deal that we say that it is, okay? That, it, that it's really a big deal that somebody doesn't agree with what you believe or don't believe, okay? Let's say that it is. Okay, so, but then we're going to blame the failure of schools on either side of this debate. This is 1% of a curriculum that is a 100% failure. It has nothing to do with English. It has nothing to do with math. It has nothing to do with physical science. You know, it has nothing to do with physics other than the origin of the universe, which we'll get to in a second. Okay? I think that's what we're really talking about here, not, not where people came from. But really, it doesn't. From a standpoint of 99% of what teachers are supposed to teach... And students are supposed to learn. It's less than 1% of the total. So the schools get all the blame for all the failures because you can't say that people debating with you how you teach 1% or less of your curriculum are the reason you suck at the other 99%. So the failure of the school systems being linked to this is bullshit. Got it? That's how simple that is. Now, here's the debate. And this is what no one seems to understand. If we're going to look into this at all, scientifically, before we even answer the question, how did life come to its current state on the planet, we must ask ourselves, how did the universe come into existence? How did the universe come to be? 
Let's just put Earth on the bookshelf for a minute. We're not that important, guys. But in the grand scheme of things, we're not. Pick up a handful of sand on a beach, and there's more stars than that in our galaxy. And there's more galaxies than that that we know of. We are one hundred millionth of one thousand millionth of one billionth of one percent of what makes up the universe. Where'd it come from? Now, if we actually want to engage the mind in a quest that will turn on all of the synapses and make someone truly question and dig deeper and find answers for themselves, that's the debate. How did all of it get here? But instead, we want to argue about one page in a science book that shows the evolution of man from a, from a, from a hominoid you know, ape species. As though that one page is really that important. Well, it is important to me, Jack, because I don't believe that. Then tell your kids what you believe. Then tell your kids what you believe. Then see to that part of their education for themselves. Teach them that this is a theory, that some people do believe this. And if you are so intrinsically weak as a human being that you cannot handle someone else having a theory that differs from what you believe, especially when what you believe is faith-based, your problem is you, not the person with the other opinion. And don't give me this bullshit, but when they teach them that, it leads to all these other things. You worry about your children. I'll worry about mine. And we can stop asking the government for help. Oh, by the way, there's the problem. The problem is not what is being taught in our schools, but government-mandated, government-run, government-controlled schools that are put in place with massive amounts of power due to the fact that your government takes a gun, points it at your face, demands money from you, and then uses your money to conduct educational activities without your consent. You see, if we didn't do that in the first place, if we didn't have public schools, oh my God, how, how would we teach the children? Listen, this is 2014. We could provide education for everyone for a fraction of what we pay now through a privately controlled system where you could decide what education your kids got. And parents with kids that needed an education could be the ones that paid for their kids' educations. Not me. I shouldn't pay for your kid. And you shouldn't pay for mine. About $4,000 a year comes out of my pocket in property taxes, mostly to pay for the education of children that are being taught things that I don't agree with. And I'm talking about religious things. See, this is why the creationist has an objection, and this is why the evolutionist has an objection. They don't really have an objection to each other having the ideas. They have an objection to the public's money being used to teach the conflicting ideal which they have a problem with. And you know what? I get that. Because I have a problem with a lot of things schools teach our children. Like that human beings are fundamentally limited. Like that if you don't sit down for eight hours a day, something's wrong with you. Okay? I have a problem with my money being used to teach children that. 
I have a problem with my money being used by a principal or a teacher that tells a kid that's being bullied and abused to just learn how to deal with it, and it's part of life. Where if that behavior happened every anywhere but a school, the person that was doing the behavior would end up in jail, at least for a day, possibly sued, possibly up on criminal charges, but in school... Tommy's just supposed to learn to deal with it because it's part of growing up. I have a much bigger problem with those things than whether there's one page in a science book that shows the origin of the species being through evolution or the origin of the species being through a divine creation. A much bigger problem. Because parents, they think this is a big deal. Let me tell you something. You have plenty of influence over your child taking that information, processing it, and determining what they believe for themselves. And this is your big problem. Most of your parents that really worry about either side is you don't actually get to determine what your child believes when they grow up, become an adult, and walk out the door. You lay a pathway for them, and they choose how much of it to walk on. And that's as it should be. And you want to blame somebody else for the fact that your child as an independent thinking being made a decision that was different than yours, no matter what it is. What would you prefer? That they're not even exposed to the competing ideal? That they're just told there is only this one way of thinking? P.S. But if you want that and you want to pay for that kind of education, God bless you and go forth. But to debate this... When our schools are doing a hundred other things that are far more detrimental to our, 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 our society, our nation, and our children, it's nonsensical. Let me put it this way. None of these kids that are snapping a gasket, getting a gun, and shooting other kids, or getting a knife and stabbing other kids, are doing it because of the teaching of evolution versus creation. They're doing it because they feel abused and helpless. And that is not why they feel abused and helpless. It's not because of a freaking page in a science book. It's because of an institution that doesn't see to the needs of children, that treats everybody the same, and tells a kid with a problem to deal with it. And if you have any time to worry about that and what's being taught on one or two pages of a science book, when all these other things are going wrong, talk about missing the forest for the trees. So that's my opinion. I'd love to hear yours in the blog. I'm sure many of you are upset with me now. But again, I'll put it back on you this way. Your kids are your responsibility. My kids are my responsibility. You should have no greater right to tell me what I teach my kid than I should to tell you. And what they do in public school, well, that probably shouldn't be there in the first place. And you always have the option of homeschooling or private schooling. And don't tell me you can't afford it, because if it's as important as you say, if that, if that couple pages matters that much, well, you know what you could at least do? You could afford for them a complete education in your competing belief, and just give them that, and then trust that they will do what's right for them, even if it's not what you think is right for you. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Dylan Angus Angus on the forums. That was a radio question for Steve Harris. Uh, during the radio show he recently did, he said that uh, CDs weren't really a great, easy option for the house. But I'm also a ham, I'm, and I have uh, antennas in my attic that I've built, um, you know, that, that can get half wave or full wave for HF frequencies. My question is, can you do the same thing for CBs? It, it seems to me that you could, 
Uh, I just like Steve's uh, take on it. You know, if I could build an 11 meter antenna, which is where the CB band is, uh, and then use that with a you know relatively low power uh, CB, just like uh, I would with a ham unit. Anyway, thanks a lot. Appreciate all you do. And now we will hear from the illustrious Stephen Harris while I continue to let my blood pressure drop. Hello, Dylan. This is Steve Harris with the TSP Expert Panel calling in to answer your question. Well, if you want to put an antenna in your attic, the question is really, how big is your attic? Sounds like it's fairly large. Like you said, CB is also called 11 meters. So for those of you who don't know, that is how long the wavelength of the frequency actually is. It goes up and down over 11 meters through the air. And Dylan, you know, as I do, that a quarter wave antenna is usually the standard that for making an antenna, and that will be around nine feet. So if you want to build or buy a standard quarter wave antenna, the question is, will it fit in your attic with a nine feet of vertical and about 18 feet of horizontal wires or radials coming out? There's no reason a CB antenna won't work in your attic. It has nothing to do with the frequency. It only has to do with your available space. The other thing you could do if you had nine feet of vertical space and not 18 feet of horizontal space is make a quarter wave dipole. This will hang from the ceiling straight up and down. Most HF frequencies are horizontally polarized, and for everyone listening who don't know what that is, it's simple. It means the antenna is going side to side. The antenna is flat, okay? It's not vertical. CB transmissions are vertically polarized, so the antenna sticks straight up in the air. VHF and UHF frequencies are also vertically polarized, so their antenna sticks straight up into the air. Now, I have a quarter-wave dipole antenna I made in my communications kit. Um, since it's made from wire, it just rolls up pretty easily. I can throw a string and a rock over a tree and pull it up higher to get better communications. It's a field-portable antenna. It's simply made with a ballon with an SO238 connector on it that a PL259 uh, cable plugs into, and it's got two 14-gauge radials coming off of it for a total length of tip-to-tip of about one-quarter wave. I have to say that I think putting antennas in the attic is a really good stealth way to have a lot of communications in your house without advertising it to the entire world. Oh, I forgot. There is another option. You can get a disc cone antenna with a center coil and vertical antenna, vertical radial. That might fit into your attic as well, and it's got great performance, better performance than a dipole antenna. Uh, I have the discone antenna I'm talking about, and it's on the radio's 1234 website, so you can go check it out. I got the ones up there without the center radio, radio going up, which is great for scanner and Baofeng and everything, and um, I got the one without the radio. So remember, the discone antenna to work on CB must have the center radio and coil. The description will say that it works from 25 megahertz to something like 1300 megahertz, which I should say the discone antenna makes a perfect scanner antenna, perfect Baofeng antenna, because it works over such a broad range of frequencies. Normally you have to have a VHF antenna and a UHF antenna and a CB antenna, 
but this antenna is such a broad spectrum, it'll work over all of them. So this one will probably fit in your attic, and I would highly suggest the discount. It's not that big, and it's really well made, and it's easy to ship because everything just screws together. It's really kind of neat. And uh, you guys know, uh, I'll tell you something funny. Uh, someone put in the blog section of the communications show that I did, show 1322. It's called the Stephen Harris Drinking Game. Every time I mention one of my 1234 websites, you take a drink. <laughs> oh, I was laughing for five minutes after I read that. Thanks for the comments, guys. For those of you who have not heard the Stephen Harris Show with Jack on all things communications for the average man, you can listen to it with one tap on your smartphone at radios1234.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S-1234.com. If you've not seen the website since the show, I've gotten a lot of emails and questions, so I've really updated the site. I've added more items, fixed some descriptions, expanded some stuff. Did I say added more items? Yeah, I added more great stuff. Check it out. And all of my free classes are at www.steven1234.com. Thanks, guys. Call us some more questions. I'm running low, and I always answer them, and I love to hear them. Talk to you later. Bye. Hi, Jack. Daryl in Pennsylvania. I have, I think, a unique soil question. I was listening, looking at your YouTube uh, permaculture videos. Uh, segment number 13, you were talking about swales. Um, you talked about digging out uh, digging out the matter from where you want your swale and then berming it up on the downgrade side. And you said you can make the profile of that berm um, higher or longer depending on what you wanted to accomplish. I was wondering exactly what you would accomplish through different profiles if you had it mounted up high and short. High and uh, compacted, or if it was low and uh, drawn out. Look forward to your answer. Thank you for the show. Bye. Okay, great question. To answer that, for those that maybe have never heard me talk about permaculture or swales before, I have to first give the 30-second explanation to what a swale is. A swale is a ditch on contour, meaning it's a ditch that doesn't move water. It stops, holds, and infiltrates water. So it's on a dead level. So normally you build a ditch on a pitch, so when water goes into it, it goes away. We build a swale ditch, just like when you look at a contour map, right? And you look at a map, and it's got elevation lines on it. You build it right on that line. So we go out with a laser level or an A-frame level, and we shoot a level line, and we dig a ditch on that line so that as water comes down grade, it sits in the ditch, infiltrates into the ground, rehydrates the soil, and we can grow forest and tree systems without irrigation or by or seriously reducing irrigation. We can do things like restore old springs that have stopped running, and we can fill ponds and create overflows for ponds. That's what swales are. So the question is then, if I go in and I build a swale, I take my excavator and I dig the dirt and I make a berm on the downgrade side, and obviously I would want to put the berm on the downgrade side so that the water can get into the ditch and then weep into the berm. So as the water infiltrates into the ground, the loose berm now wicks water up into the berm, and I can plant into the berm and downgrade from the berm. That's that's why I build a swale that way. I might build it with a kind of a high berm, or I might spread my berm out. Right, I still want it to be raised up above the swale line, but I, it might be more like an airplane wing. Why would I do one or the other? Okay, well, the first thing might be, it might just be, what can I do? So if I have kind of a clayey, loamy soil that will kind of hold together really well for me, well, it's it's going to 
be fine if I make basically the mound almost a, a mirror image of the ditch. So it's it's almost the same shape. So if it's a, a foot and a half deep ditch, it's three feet wide. I got a three foot wide mound that's a foot and a half deep in the center, and it'll hold together. If it's very sandy, well, if I try to do that, I may end up with half of the berm back in the ditch because it won't hold a high uh, profile. I'm gonna have to put it to a lower profile because it it, it, it physically doesn't have the structure to stand higher. So that would be one thing. Okay, So it might just be because I have to. It might be that I have really deep soil that's easy to dig, and I don't necessarily need a really high mound to plant into. Or, like on my property, we kept the mounds relatively narrow. Now, they are about, the, they are about six foot. They're about the same as the ditch. We certainly didn't pull them out and tail them out any because I'm sitting on 10 inches to 12 inches of dirt before I hit rock. So if I'm putting a tree in, a two-foot taproot, like a pecan, I need that just to get the tree in the ground down to the graft without having to pull out, you know, picking a shovel and start rock bar and rock out. Which, by the way, I don't really want to rock bar roots into the rock. You know, I mean, it's kind of like putting it in a sarcophagus. Then. It's like, as I've said before, certain places planting a tree is like setting a baby free in an interstate. You just don't do that. It's going to die, right? So that would be another reason. Now, another reason, though, I might want a nice high berm is I immediately create microclimates. I've got kind of a really exposed top, and I've got two shoulders. And I can go back onto the ditch side or way to the front side with my plantings. Now, think about this. If my mound is facing east, I've got eastern sun on one side of the mound, and I've got western sun on the back side of the mound. And I may plant species that take better advantage of having the roots warm in the morning versus having it pounded on them in the afternoon. North-south, I've got a shady side of the mound, period, and a very sun-hit side, especially in the winter when the sun's low. So by going with a steeper mound, I get more texture in the landscape and more opportunities for niches and microclimates. So that's, that's another reason I might do that. If I'm building really big swales... With really high berms, I've effectively created a windbreak right from the get-go before the trees even get up. So I might plant smaller trees on the leeward side of the wind out of the mound or at the edge of the mound because they're going to get plenty of water infiltration even if they're not in the mound from the downgrade water. And I might plant smaller, more tender plants in that little niche so that when that harsh wind comes across them, that swale berm acts like an airplane wing and pushes the air up and over them. And by the time they get high enough, they don't really need as much support. There's just all kinds of things that happen based on the structure of the mound. And the biggest reason I can see to tail that mound out is if I want to put in a really wide forest strip. If I dig, let's say, a eight-foot wide swale about two feet deep, and that ratio will work. Nice bag cut. Probably six feet of that swale that needs to be almost flat, like a, like a sidewalk, and then two feet on each, maybe five feet like that, and a foot and a half on each side for the back of the front cut, and then a really wide berm. And I take the berm out instead of being a two-foot-high berm that's eight-foot wide, and I take it out to being an 18-inch-high berm that's more like 12 feet wide, and I start staggering my trees, I can fit more into the berm. 
So that might be why I tailed the burnout. So it's all about what are your goals, what type of soil do you have, what's your solar aspect and orientation, what are your winds, uh, what's the subsoil like, how much space do you have, and what's your final intended purposes. So all of those things can be tweaked a little bit just by determining how high and steep the berm is that comes out of the soil ditch. Anyway, great question. Actually, it's surprising to me that I've actually never had that question before, so thank you for that. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Leo from Iowa. I just had a quick question about poly tanks for water storage. I was curious the pros and cons of the clear tanks to the black tanks. Uh, I noticed when I was out at your food forest workshop, you got the black ones. I figured there's a good reason for that. So love the show, love what you do, and uh, thanks for everything. Bye. Well, it's not really the answer, but the most simple answer would be that the reason I have black poly tanks is when I looked at a tank of uh, the size that I could fit. I wanted the biggest thing that I could fit within reason without being too obvious from the road what it was. Uh, the tanks they had were black, so I took what they had, but that's not really why. If they only had white, I would have actually wanted black, and I would have waited to get black, and here's why. Green. Green. That's, that's the number one reason, the color green, which is the color your water will be uh, if it's in a white tank with the sun hitting it as uh, algal growth takes over and begins to infiltrate into your water. And then even if you're not using it for drinking, you've got more potential for things to clog up your, your hoses and your fittings and things like that. And if you are going to use it for drinking, even with purification, filtering, etc., you've got one more thing to worry about. <clears throat> Where a black tank, I've actually never seen a black tank with algae in it. I, I just haven't. Uh, the big black purpose-built poly tanks, I've never seen it. The Again, though, right, everything that has an advantage, also usually a strength, also has a weakness. The weakness of the black tank is um, if I put you in a suit, full suit, like a dress suit, and one was black and one was white, and you stood in the exact same sun for a couple hours on a hot day, which one do you think you'd feel more uncomfortable in? You'd probably be, you'd be uncomfortable in both of them, but the black one is going to conduct more solar radiation, more heat, transfer more of it to your body, and it's going to be a hotter experience for you. So the water will get hotter in a poly tank than this black than a white one. So I've seen some that are like a dark opaque green, and that probably works, but it probably doesn't mitigate the, the thermal gain very much. It's just that it's dark, period, and any dark is going to suck up a lot of radiation. Um, so the simple solution to that is to put some sort of lattice around the tank, which is what we're going to do, and train vines up it to keep it shaded. And you say, well, why not just use the white tank and shade it, and that'll keep the algae down, because you'll still get enough light through for algae to grow. So that, that's the primary reason when you see poly water tanks, the, the majority of them that you see are either going to be an opaque, dark green, or black, is just keeping down the growth of algae inside the tank. Um, good question. Oh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. My name's Charlie Underwood, and I live in uh, central North Carolina, in Asheboro to be specific. Um, I'm wondering about mountain laurel. Um, if I was to chip up the mountain laurel with a wood chipper, is that uh, safe to use for mulch? I hear that, or I've read that mountain laurel is uh, poisonous to animals and humans, so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this. I love the show, man. Thanks for the hard work. See you. Ah, uh, mountain laurel, or as it was always referred to by hunters in Pennsylvania, buck laurel. 
because that's where the big bucks would go hide when they were under a lot of pressure because it's an evergreen and it would still be thick and dense in there, but they weren't eating it and they weren't eating it because you're right. Um, uh, mountain laurel, which is, uh, Calmea latifolia is the Latin name for it is actually a very toxic species. If you eat it, if ingested, um, It's got something called grayanotoxin in it and arbutin. And both of those are quite toxic. Very toxic to goats, cattle, deer, horses, uh, monkeys, humans. Um, it's, it's something you really wouldn't want to eat. Um, and it's everywhere. And yet you don't have a bunch of goats, cattle, deer, and people falling over and dying from it. Because it's very, very bitter. It, it's extremely bitter. Now... The one way that it can get into human beings, and it, this almost never happens in any uh, serious level, um, is through honey. Bees will use uh, the, the flower of this plant to make honey, and it doesn't affect bees. And you can get honey that's toxic enough to, if eaten in large quantities, kill a person. The thing is that honey is not going to taste like normal honey. It's going to be very bitter. And you think something's wrong with this honey. So you don't hear about that happening a lot either. Um, nothing that I can find on mountain laurel indicates in any way, though, that it's alleopathic. Alleopathic means it suppresses the growth of other plants. So if we had something to the effect of a black walnut, you'll generally see that most of the stuff underneath black walnut, there's not a lot growing there. And it inhibits, as a competitive measure, the growth of other plants. Black locust can do this little tiny bit, uh, but black locust is more that it's immune to the allopathic things of things with juglone in them, like a walnut or a pecan. Right. So we wouldn't want to use um, mulch from a black walnut as something we wanted to grow stuff in, because it would definitely have some juglone and suppress the growth of other plants. Um, I don't think there's anything about mountain laurel that would do the same thing, though. I, I think it would be pretty safe to use as a mulch. I can't confirm or deny that. Um, I would say that you might want to look elsewhere, especially if you have dogs. Here's why. Dogs are stupid. Love my dogs, but dogs are stupid. And sometimes dogs eat things, and you just can't figure out why. Sometimes dogs eat things like an entire half of a Frisbee, in the case of Charlie, and ends up pooping little plastic things out. I, I would be really cautious with bringing anything with that much toxicity uh, onto my property. Now, we had oleanders in Arlington, and we had dogs and cats, and none of them ever ate it and got sick from it. Um, and, um, you know, but... Would Charlie eat an oleander? I don't know, but they're, they're, they could be quite toxic as well. So I would say if you don't have a concern with dogs or cats chewing on this stuff and eating it, I, I would go ahead and use it if you feel it's the best option you have. I just think there's probably a lot of other stuff available that might be better suited to this. Now, if you're clearing land and you have lots of this stuff in your clearings, and you need to do something with it instead of just piling it up. I get that. And I think then what I would tell you might really be smart is to don't use, and I would say this anyway, don't use any one thing as your mulch. You know, 
pine, brah, mountain laurel, brah, piece of choke cherry, brah, piece of this one, brah, oak brow, brah, spruce, brah. That, that's, that's a good mulch. A good mulch is made up of just all different sizes, shapes, and types of things. And then a lot of these things are mitigated. Now, I know that it's generally considered that these things are highest in concentration in the flowers and the green parts of the plant. So what happens when it's shredded up and dried out? Does the toxicity decrease? My answer to that is I do not know. I certainly wouldn't make a tea out of it and drink it, though. I can tell you that. So these are one of those things that I think you use a little bit of caution with. But do think about the fact that this stuff will flat kill a deer and you don't have deer eating it and dying even though they're living in it. It, it tastes really bad. Now, ironically, it's a relative of blueberry. Blueberry flowers make great honey and blueberries are very good to eat. Um, but I don't know. Is blue, are blueberry leaves toxic? That'd be an interesting little question. I, I don't think they are. What do you guys think? Um, it's possible, I guess. I never tried to eat a blueberry leaf. Well, I have used the power of the internet during that little uh, pause there, and I have found that, in general, there are some toxic components to blueberry leaves. They are used as a medicinal. Uh, they can be consumed in small quantities. At least that's what the internet says. Don't go out and eat some to find out. I bet they don't taste good, but they are considered a medicinal herb with active components, and I'll bet you they have some of the toxicity that's in mountain laurel just in lower quantities because both of those substances have been used as medicines. Um, an example of something very toxic that also gets used as a medicine is foxglove, a.k.a. digitalis. So if you have certain heart conditions, you'll be given digitalis to deal with them. And if you take too much of that medication, it will kill you dead. Here's a quick story on how sometimes using a whole plant is better than using a pharmaceutical. So I read this in Dr. Andrew Wiles, one of, the, one of Andrew Wiles' books. I don't remember which book. And he was talking about how when he was studying to become a doctor, and he's a little bit older of a guy, so he's studying many years ago. And he's going and he's doing it, I think he was doing his internship, and he had a book out on digitalis. And it listed three levels of symptoms. And one was like mild stomach problems and things like that. The next one was like vomiting and really, really sick. And then the last one was dead. The third symptom of overuse of digitalis was dead. Well, in his work as an intern, he had never seen a person violently ill from digitalis, only moderately a little bit sick. And he had actually seen some overdoses where a guy died from too much of it. He had never seen the middle symptoms. So he's interning with this really wise older doctor. Guy's been around for now. You take Andrew's age and you go back to an older doctor at the time he's an intern. You're back to a guy who was practicing medicine in like the 20s. Okay. And he, and he says to him, he says, why, what, what's, you know, have you ever seen this? He goes, oh, with pills? No. Either they get a little bit sick or they're dead. That never happens. And he goes, well, why is it in the book? He goes, oh, see, when we used to use the whole plant, we never killed anybody. Nobody ever died. Now, this is not to say if you go out and like eat handfuls of digitalis, it won't kill you. It'll kill your ass dead. But if you're doing it as a doctor, using it in prescribed dosages, he, what he said was that people would get so sick if you were giving them too much so quickly that you would always pull back the dosage before you did them any real long-term harm. 
Now, again, this is being done by an MD, not by you in your backyard. But that's an example of a toxic substance being used to heal. So that's probably why blueberry, which is a relative of highly toxic mountain laurel, is used as a medicinal. But I'm spitballing there. Let's take another question. Hi, this is Mike, and I have a question for expert council member Ben Falk. And I am in Zone 6 here in Ohio, and I'm wondering what Ben recommends for a design if I were to build my own covered woodshed, maximizing airflow and also rain protection. Some of the things I'm kind of curious about, and maybe I'm just over-engineering this in my head, but how much wood does he recommend that it would hold? Uh, enough for one winter and have more driving uncovered, drying uncovered somewhere else, or maybe try to get more than that under the cover? Uh, next question is, is how long and uh, narrow should it need to be? I assume that that's probably ideal. But if I'm trying to maximize and get a minimum of two to three cords of wood to cover, I'm thinking that if this thing isn't going to be huge, then it'll probably need to be kind of deep. And if I have some wood stacked in the middle, that's not going to be good and it's not going to dry out well enough. So anything else you'd like to share on the subject, I would appreciate hearing your thoughts. Thanks very much. And with that, expert council member Ben Falk, uh, specializing in permaculture in cold climates, specifically northeastern cold climates. Hi there, Jack and all. Ben Falk here with uh, an attempt to answer that question about a woodshed design and use. Um, well, I have to start by saying we don't we don't actually use woodsheds for the most part. I have a barn where I keep some wood, um, but I just have, have had a, a excess of scrap metal roofing around that I just salvage for free locally. So I actually haven't had to build a woodshed. Um, I'd like to for sure. Woodshed has uh, woodshed has the advantage of um, of being more permanent, you can get, you know, you can get your wood without the the snow falling on top of you. I mean, we with metal roofing, you can basically mine out your pile throughout the winter, and if you do it carefully, you can get a lot of your wood. But at certain point, you know, you have to remove the snow and the weight holding the roofing down, and then kind of um, let the roofing down onto its next supports. You know, kind of. Um, you know, jigsaw the thing back and forth, the roofing as the pile's getting lower and lower. We don't find it's very difficult, and, you know, we have the roofing, and it's not really good for anything else. But uh, it also has the advantage having these scrap metal-covered uh, piles in that they're modular, and you can kind of put them wherever, and things are kind of always in development here. So, you know, once you build a shed, it's it's pretty much going to stay where it is, although I have moved a wood shed. And actually, I haven't built a shed, but we do have, on one of our buildings, we've had a wood shed for actually about 10 years. Um, I guess what you're, what you're thinking about in terms of um, design um, criteria are important. Airflow, putting it in a sunny spot, I would add. Is, you know, the sunnier the spot, the better drying you're going to get. Making sure, of course, the wood is kept off the ground, so putting pallets in there. If you can get scrap pallets for free is probably the easiest way to do that. You could also frame it up with rot-resistant lumber um, or just, like, large saplings or logs that, that keep it up off the ground that when they rot out, you replace, although that probably would give you a surface that would be hard to stack on top of. Um, one really important consideration is to be able to get at it from both sides or have it long and narrow because whether using a woodshed or scrap metal roofing, you want to be able to store two years of wood at once because basically going into a winter you're going to want to have two years of wood put up in the fall because you're going to want to have that 
of course, that winter's wood put up. But then you're really going to need the next winter's wood put up as well, unless you get it all processed in April or May. Because if you're in a cold, humid climate, you need most of the growing season to dry your wood. Now, if you're in a really dry, arid climate, this isn't true. You might be able to dry wood depending on how small you split it, uh, the size, the length of the of the billets, of the rounds. Um, you might be able to dry wood thoroughly in, in two months, you know, or even less if you're in a real desert climate. But I'm speaking about a cold, human climate. Um, so you want two years' worth. And just from an insurance perspective, um, you know, wood, if it's stored well, is not perishable. It doesn't go bad. So... Um, you want to have have as much as you can put up, and sometimes if you get some logs delivered, or you're kind of in a you have good conditions to process wood, you might want to put up a lot of wood when you have those conditions. Like when there's great logging conditions, for instance, it's easiest to just drag a whole bunch of logs and put up a whole bunch of wood at once. Um, so if your woodshed isn't is too deep and you can't get at it from both sides, then you end up you'll end up putting the fresh cord or two or three cords or more in front of what's then going to be a dry cord blocking yourself out. So you'd have to, you know, you want to minimize moving wood, of course, because there's nothing you're going to move more weight around, um, except if you're building stone walls or things like that, than the, the yearly moving of cordwood. So you don't want to have to shuffle around or shuffle it around more than once. Um, so a, a narrow, deep woodshed would basically box you out of your your next year's worth of wood. So long and narrow, if you can do it, that's also great for airflow, for sunshine, for circulation, um, and drying. Big overhangs, making sure it's not too low as well to get in there. Um, but that's uh, those are some of the basics, and good luck with it. Hi, Jack. This is Salvador in Tennessee. Um, my question is, what... And how do you build a kit um, as it relates to firearms? I've started to attend um, the higher level um, firearms classes, and I've seen at various times when the class starts, people said, okay, we'll go get your kit. Um, And as I started to get past the level two type of thing, I've seen people with more tactical stuff on, and um, here I show up in just my belt and holster and a few extra magazines. Uh, for some of these classes, and I'm just kind of curious. You know, I kind of have an idea, but if you give a little more coloring around it, um, that'd be advantageous. Um, you know, I kind of feel a little silly sometimes, um, but uh, I just love the show and uh, love to hear what you have on that. Thanks, man. Bye. This is one of those things that I always have to answer with the ever-present, it depends. Here's what I mean. My preference has always been to train with pretty much a gun, a holster, and a magazine. And I'll tell you why. If I'm out carrying, I am probably carrying a gun, a holster, and an extra magazine. That's what I'm carrying. I'm not out wearing a tactical vest. <laughs> right now, maybe a carry vest, you know, and there's there's definitely some advantages to a carry vest from a convenience and comfort standpoint uh, at certain times of the year and what have you. Yeah, but, I mean, I'm not out, you know, ninja out in black uh, tactical uh, kit when I'm out, you know, making a deposit at the bank or picking up some uh, groceries or 
or uh, you know picking up some lumber or whatever. I'm not dressed that way. So to me, I've always been more on the the uh, standpoint to train the way that you'll fight. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna end up in a fight all kitted up unless we get to the end of the world as we know it, or unless that's my job. So here's where we get to the other side of it. A lot of times, as you get into higher level classes, you're training with people that that is what they do for a living. They're either military contractors, they're private security contractors, they're law enforcement, they're active serving military. That's what they do. And when they're deployed out and they've got weapons drawn, a lot of times they are in their quote unquote kit. Right? So you've got that. You've also got a lot of people that in that level of training, they are a little bit of mall ninja in them, right? A little bit of mall security ninja, right? They dream that that's what they do. So they train that way. Now I'm putting it down if you do, right? There's nothing wrong with training that way. That's okay. But there's people that do it because, well, you're just taking your training up a level and you're putting more equipment in play and things like that. Uh, there's people that do it, honest to God, as they take higher-end training, they get the gear to fit in. There's people that are doing it because they believe there may come a day when they, with their teams, will have to use that level of, uh, of, of training. And that in those tactical situations, they would indeed be kitted up. So they are training the way they may have to fight. Okay, Those are all fine. Doing it just because you think it's the right thing to do because other people are doing it, though, doesn't really suit you. Remember that when you train... You're training for yourself. You're training for those that depend on you, and that's it. You're not training for the guy at the other end of the line that's training for other people and for other reasons. So I think you should only invest as much in kit, if you want to call it that, as, um, as, 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 as makes sense to your goals and your objectives. And anything beyond that is really about just because you want to or because you have a reason. Uh, I know some people may differ with me and say, you know what, you should train at the highest level and then it translates down. I, I don't know that that's the case. If I'm out training with a tactical vest that has my magazines where I can reach across my 3 o'clock and grab a magazine and reload, and I train like that often, and my magazine is back behind my holster or on my weak side, and I have to reload from a totally different position without the convenience and speed, and I've now conditioned myself to believe that my reload timing is X when my reload timing is actually Y, I don't know that I've trained to the occasion. In fact, I can tell you I have not. I've specifically trained to a situation where I've given myself an advantage that I will not have. I will not have that advantage of having the weapon and the magazine, and just being able to basically pull and rotate the mag and up into the mag well and, and cycle. I will not have that advantage. Now, again, if I'm a police officer, a contractor, private security personnel, and I routinely am using that as part of my uniform, then indeed I should train that way. And just understand that you have a mix in those higher level classes. A lot of those guys, that is what they do. And they're kitted up the way that they would be kitted up if they went into the tactical entry. 
If you are training because you want to be proficient, and you're going to be proficient as someone that carries and defends your home, you know, how many times are you going to be kitted up? Now, as you get into, like, rifle training, I'll tell you what, it makes sense. It, it makes a lot more sense to me. Because in general, if you've gone to the rifle, something's up, right? If you've gone to the rifle, especially anything other than in your own house... We, we are on a heightened set, you know, set of alerts, let's say. But when you're, you're carrying your Glock or your Smith or your Kimber or your Sig or, or, or your, your Colt or whatever it is on a day-to-day -day basis, so I think it also has a lot to do with the training. Now, here's the last part. Talk to the instructor before you book the course. Tell them what your goals are. Tell them what your objectives are and ask them what they feel you should bring based on the goals, objectives, and the class. Because the guy may say, look, this is a tactical entry class. Now, either you need the gear to do this type of a tactical entry, or this is not a class you should be taking. Let me let me put, plug you into a different class, because this does not meet your goals, if that makes sense. And I'll also tell you, I think that as you get into the tactical entry training and stuff like that, guys covering each other's sectors of fire and stuff, it, it really makes a lot of sense to head the airsoft route. And have force on force. Um, it will never put the fear into you, but it will put the realism into you. And I love the people like, oh, it's not realistic because you can put 300 rounds in a magazine. Well, don't put 300 rounds in a magazine. Put 10, 20, 30, whatever fits the scenario. And have multiple magazines and reloads. I think it's one of the, the absolute best training methodologies there is out there. But I guess my big thing is, okay, so when you were a kid, you went to school. And then, like, one of the kids got these new cool shoes. And everybody's like, oh, those are cool. And then, like, a couple other kids got them. And, like, oh, those are cool. And then all of a sudden, like, all the cool kids have the cool shoes. And you went home and, like, well, I got to have these cool shoes, too. And mom's like, hey, I'm not made of money or whatever. And either you did or didn't get your shoes. But your motivation was because other people had it. Don't let that be why you increase your tactical kit around your firearms training. Do it because it makes sense, and don't do what doesn't make sense for you. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, it's Anthony from Long Island. Just wondering what color uh, shotgun I should buy for home defense. This may be a question for Frank Sharp Jr., but you can probably answer it, too. I love the black tactical Mossberg kind of shotguns with all the ghost ring sights and everything that would be ideally suited for defense of my home. However, since I live in the People's Republic of New Yorkistan, I'm one this, God forbid, and they held up that black piece of hardware in front of a jury instead of a nice brown wooden stock windmaster or something like that, that, you know, I might be looking at some time because people here just love firearms. Just advise any way you can, man. Show's awesome. Take it easy. God bless. Um, I have vacillated on this one myself. A purpose-built tactical shotgun is one of the best home defense weapons that there is. And you don't need a lot of crap on it. Maybe a light, and uh, like the ghost ring sights are good, but you really, it's a, a shotgun at home defense ranges is a point weapon. It's not a point in the general direction. It's a up, eyeball, barrel, point, shoot thing. If you can't hit a person at home defense ranges with a shotgun, Putting better sights on it is not going to change that. So, uh, but it is purpose built and it is 
probably the best implement as far as shotguns go for home defense. Okay, but let's examine now why. Well, because it's short-barreled and it's a shotgun. That's why. It's short-barreled shotgun. So if you took yourself an 870 and got yourself an 18-inch barrel for it, took that little freaking retainer screw off the front and popped the barrel off and put the 18-inch barrel on it, put the retainer back on, it is, for all intents and purposes, the same weapon. It really is. The color doesn't mean anything. That's part of what makes some of these assault weapons bands so stupid. It's about the way the, the weapon looks. Oh, we can't have that. Well, what about this? Well, that doesn't look too bad. And this is a, a Remington 7400 7, or a 74000 now or whatever they call them. Uh, semi-auto 3006. But it looks like a hunting rifle. But this one's black. And it shoots a 223 assault round, which is shit compared to a 3006, by the way, right? So it's the same kind of thing. But let me tell you what. Your concern is not without validity. Should you ever find yourself in a trial, because some district attorney in your state, no matter whether it's the state of New York, which is more likely, or state of Texas, which is less likely, but in your state, should you end up being prosecuted for using lethal force where they decide that they want to prosecute you for killing a criminal, and you have a dangerous-looking gun, more dangerous than usual to the average moron, they will hold it up. They will hold it up and say, look at this weapon of death. The other side of it is, if you don't want me to shoot, you don't break in my house at night. So part of me feels like, own oh, whatever gun you want. But the more logical side of me says, get yourself a Remington 870, a Mossberg 500, hunting gun, and put a short barrel on it. It shoots the same ammunition. It does all the same things. You want a semi-auto, get yourself a Remington 1100 or a Benelli or something like that. Put a short barrel on it. They make them. Don't saw a barrel off. Okay? Let's put a short barrel on it. And you should never have to answer the question of why there's a short barrel on it. But if you did, I'd say because I hunt in the bush a lot. On a shorter gun, it's easier to get through the bush. Because that's actually why I have short barrels on my guns. On my shotguns. My my true purpose-built hunting shotguns. I have very short barrels on them. Because if you go hunting like grouse, if I ever get home again to Pennsylvania, I'll do a lot of grouse hunting like I used to, and you're in those tangles with all that marrow laurel we talked about earlier, it's just much easier to move through the woods. And once you're out to about 20 inches with a shotgun, inches don't matter for anything other than a sighting plane on long-distance shooting. The, the ballistics are identical at that point. Once the powder has fully burned, you're not changing the velocity of the projectile anymore. You're just getting a longer sight radius. So you tend to be more accurate in long shots. If they make these old goose shotguns, you know, 10 gauges with like 32-inch barrels. The, the, there is a case for longer barrels with certain ammunition, but in a shotgun, the, the powder has done what it can do at about 18 to 20 inches. So the ballistics are identical. So even with a shot with a hunting shotgun for timber hunting, I would go with a shorter barrel. So if you had a shotgun that's more along those lines, then it probably works better as a multi-purpose tool as well. And I'm going to put it to you this way. 99% of the time, 
if you are held to be having used lethal force without legal justification, the gun you used will not matter. It's not going to matter. They're going to make the judgment, but the cosmetics can and will be used against you in a court of law because most people are stupid. That's all it really comes down to. Most people, with regard to firearms, are stupid, and a prosecutor in a case like this will do everything they can during jury selection to ensure that the jury is made up of people that don't know their ass from a hole in the ground about guns. And your fate is in the hands of 12 people making a, a judgment based on aesthetics. I don't see a good enough reason to give them that advantage. If, if, if you know, You're thinking way in the future there, but that's what we do in survivalism. And here's what I mean. If I thought having a tactical Mossberg shotgun for your home defense shotgun made you more likely to survive a confrontation with a dangerous person breaking into your home than a short-barreled 870 or a short-barreled Mossy 500 that looks like a hunting gun. And I thought it made any difference at all in your ability to survive. I'd say go with the survival and fight the battle if you have to. But I don't believe that to be the case. I don't believe you gain any real tactical advantage in that type of scenario. Now, civil breakdown, zombie apocalypse, whatever, tactical training, like we were talking about earlier, I get it. Tactical shotguns are not that expensive, by the way. Makes sense. But for what you grab when you hear a bump in the night, honestly, I'm a big believer in handguns being better for that in most instances. But if you're going to do it with a shotgun, I, I'll just side to the, 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 the you know, what's the consequence versus the, the reward. And I don't see anything that that dangerous-looking shotgun can do that's actually any more capable than the one that looks like Granddad's hunting gun. Well, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jack from Ardmore, Oklahoma. I have a question for you, sir, regarding ammunition and shelf life. Does ammunition have a shelf life? Uh, I would assume that if it did have a shelf life, that it would really be determined a lot by how you store it. I would think that if you would store the ammo properly, you would increase the shelf life, and it would probably be well beyond my lifetime. Um, but, Jack, I just want to get your opinion on it. Does ammunition have a shelf life? And what's the proper way to store ammo to help increase its shelf life? Thank you, Jack. Well, in general, everything has a storage life expectancy. But in the world of ammunition, without extreme abuse, it is, for all intents and purposes, irrelevant. Because I have ammunition that was in my grandfather's footlocker that I still occasionally shoot, and I shoot it very sparingly just because I feel like I'm connected to my grandfather when I shoot it. And one of the boxes um, had written on it in, in a black marker, 1943. Um, and that ammo still works. I had, I had because I, I bartered it, some ammunition for 8mm Mauser that was from Turkey. And it was not well stored at all. 
Some of it was corroded. Some of it you could actually pull the bullets out of it. I bought it for shooting in a Turkish Mauser. These are Mausers that were 7.84, some weird caliber that they don't make anymore, made in the 1890s by Germany, shipped to Turkey. And in the 1930s, as World War II was coming on, Turkey saw the writing on the wall, shipped a bunch of their Mausers back to Germany, couldn't afford new guns, and said, fix, make these things work. I mean, we need new ammo. So Germany rebarreled them to modern 8mm and sent them back. By the way, you can get these from SOG, Southern Ohio Guns, is a is not just a Kuro and Relic, but it's an antique. Because even though they were rebarreled in the 30s, the gun itself, the receiver was made in the 1890s, is considered an antique. You can buy it with no paperwork, with a photocopy of your driver's license. They will ship it to your house, just for the record. I had this ammo. And except for the stuff that was clearly, like, corroded from what have you, I'd put that in that Mauser and shoot it all day long, and it worked just fine. So that was about as bad as storage got. It was in these bandoliers that were made out of this green cloth and these old buttons, and they came on the market back in the 90s, and I think it was like $4 a bandolier, and there was like 6 times 10, 60 rounds in each bandolier. It might have been 7 times 10. It was on 5-round stripper clips, 2 in each pouch. Um, I think Joe has those now, or who knows, maybe he's bartered it off. But um, those are proof that ammo lasts a long time. Now, I do want to bring up an urban legend. Do you know that by a secret behind-the-scenes thing that Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or one of those guys um, came up with this new plan to make handgun ammunition only last two years? So now there's there's this if the primer compound after two years it just stops working. NRA certified instructors have told their classes this. If you ever hear anybody say this, immediately call bullshit. Immediately, 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 immediately call bullshit. It is bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. It is not true. It is not true. It is not true. And we do not need people running around spreading this kind of crap. Again, if you've never heard this before, this started circulating really heavily uh, after Barack Obama got elected. And, and people that were selling guns were just as guilty in this kind of thing. And they were saying things like, you know, that new ammo is going to do this. And you better get the old ammo while you still can. And Okay. This is nonsense. Our government does enough wrong that they do not need to be blamed for things that never happened that never happened because it makes us look stupid. And it is BS. Total, complete bullpuck. Okay? There is no way that you can do that. There's no way you could set a primer so that it will specifically, like, today it works, tomorrow it doesn't. It's not possible. Now, you could build a primer that is more susceptible to breaking down over time and being more susceptible to becoming inert. But you couldn't time it that specifically. That's just, when you hear something like that, it should just send your BS meter off the charts. Please don't propagate rumors like that. Please, when you hear them, put a stop to them. Not just on this, but on anything else. But for all intents and purposes, the only two ways to really reduce the life of ammunition is to store it really, really hot, like to the point where you might actually set it off and explode it and cause other problems, or wet. If you like take it and put it in a bucket of water, be the extreme, moisture can damage and ruin ammo. 
kept dry, kept at reasonable temperatures, ammo lasts longer than you do. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Josh calling out of Phoenix, Arizona. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on growing bamboo as a survival product. On the plus side, it is a very quick-growing plant. It establishes relatively easily. You can use it not only as a, an edible product, but obviously you can use it for building materials, and you can use dried canes for fence posts, uh, flooring, or any of a thousand uses that indigenous cultures have used, or even commercial enterprises here in the States. The negatives, of course, are that it can very quickly overgrow its boundaries. Um, certain varieties are clumping and don't present quite as large a problem, but it's been known to take over yards. It can be somewhat water-intensive. However, once it's established, that tends not to be as large a problem, and it will adapt to a lower water condition. So I would love to hear your thoughts, uh, positives and negatives, and any experience you might have about growing bamboo. Thanks, Jack. Well, the only problem with 90% of that was it was the answer instead of the question. I mean, you just said everything I would say, maybe a little bit quicker and, and more uh, quick uh, specifically than I usually do. Um, I can add a little bit to that. I mean, basically everything you said is the positives and the negatives. And they do, bamboo is an incredible building uh, technology. It tends to like fungal dominated soils, forest soils that move to acidic. And a lot of people try to grow it and it just like, ugh. And that's, that's usually why. It's either not getting enough moisture or it's in a bacterial dominated soil. Uh, even though it's a grass, and grasses usually are the first things to colonize and to work in. And when I say fungal versus bacterial, a bacterial dominated soil is like one in one. One bacterium to every fungus. Okay, I mean, a balanced pasture is like half and half. If you move even a little bit to the bacterial side, you start to get where only brome grasses and things will initially colonize, and then you start to move a little bit over to fungal, and then as you get more and more far. So bamboo is a fungal-dominated plant. It's a forest plant. It's a forest understory plant. It's an edge plant. So you need, you need not necessarily deep, but rich fungal soils to grow healthy bamboo. And that's what forests have. So then the next things about bamboo, what do you do to prevent bamboo from going crazy and running all over the place? I know we get a really big, thick rubber barrier, and we get a trencher, and we trench it down two and a half to three feet, and we leave it a couple inches above ground to stop the rhizomes, and we make a moat, and we stick it in there, and we bind it up, and we hold it back. That works. Nothing wrong with it. Kind of expensive. Well, there's a simpler solution. It's called clumping bamboo. Clumping bamboo grows kind of like mondo grass, if you know what mondo grass is. It doesn't, like, okay, so regular bamboo, you think of it like St. Augustine grass. So it's got these long rhizomal runners, and it just keeps crawling and creeping, and it's like a, a creature that ate me or something, right? It's, 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 uh, it, it can become totally out of hand. Clumping bamboo just grows from the center out very, very slowly, and it's a lot easier to control. Um, and if you're mowing around it or grazing around it, you're going to create a, like kind of a line in the sand for it, so to speak. And it does all the things that running bamboo does, except there's no clumping bamboo that I know of that grows like four inch diameter, 60 foot high timber bamboo. If you want timber bamboo, you've got to go with a running bamboo and you've either got to control it or put it somewhere, natural control, something like that. Clumpers, much more mild mannered. You can get clumping bamboo that goes up to a good inch in diameter. 
12, 18 foot long. It'll do many, many great things for you, and it's the main thing I would do. So the only thing I would add to everything that you said is consider clumping bamboos or strong rhizome barriers, moist soil, and make sure you're dealing with a fungal-dominated soil if you expect good performance out of your bamboo. And if you don't have it yet, mulch with wood chips. Inoculate with mycorrhizal fungi. Keep that area moist. Plant some other supporting plants in it this year and plant it with bamboo next year and you'll be fine. It's not a hard thing. It's just if you have alkaline soil that's mostly bacterial, that's anywhere near the bacterial-dominated side of things, it, your bamboo is going to look sick and yellow and unhappy. And I've got a neighbor that just he keeps asking about it, and I keep giving him the same answer, and it's like he's an older guy, and he just can't accept that answer. It's like, well, I keep... He has it in a pot, right? He has a couple pots of the clumpers, and it does good in the pot. He keeps breaking off pieces of it and planting it in the ground, and then it dies. And he's like, I just don't think it transplants well. No, it transplants well. You're just transplanting it into a place where it's going to die. You know, so that that's that's one of the things I've learned. I am going to be putting bamboo in an area behind an outdoor shower where it'll get lots of water and moisture. It's going to be kind of shady back there, which bamboo can handle a little bit of sun, Um, and we'll mulch the hell out of it, and we'll see how it does, and we'll let you know. Uh, with that, let's go ahead. Actually, what I want to do now, I've got an expert counsel call for you, but I don't have a question. And I, I want your your guys to tell me this, if you'd like maybe some of our council members to do what John Pugliano has done. He's just simply taken an issue that's going on right now, and he's done a, a little piece for us, a segment on high-frequency trading. If you guys like that idea, I'll let all the council members know that that option is available. If you just want to take something, condense it into you know, topical, take it into five minutes or less, send us a segment, we'll play it on a Friday, we can do that, and that may work out better than some questions and who gets a question and who doesn't. Uh, I'm not saying we won't take your questions anymore. I'm just saying that might get more council activity on these calls. Let's hear from John, and then I've got one more for you before we wrap up today. Hello, TSP listeners. This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and a member of the Expert Council. wanted to chime in this week with some observations about the stock market, and in particular, wanted to comment on high-frequency trading. The last week and a half, this has gotten a lot of press. The major media have made a mountain out of a molehill and tried to convince everybody that the average investor just can't Uh, make any money in the stock market and that one of the reasons they're getting ripped off is because the market's rigged and it all has to do with high-frequency trading. In fact, it's gotten so bad that the Justice Department is going to open up an investigation in high-frequency trading. Now, anybody that's paid attention to the stock market knows that high-frequency trading is not a new phenomenon. It's probably uh, been around since at least 2008, 2009. There have been previous books written about it. There's been numerous articles written about it. Uh, if you Google it, you'll see, again, that it goes back for years. People know about it. So why, all of a sudden, would the Attorney General be so outraged that he's going to look into high-frequency trading? Well, we know why. It's an election year. It's a midterm election. The uh, current administration is trying to make all they can over a manufactured crisis about income inequality, and they're going to do everything they can between now and November to try and prove that to people, to whip up the base and get people very enraged. I just don't want you to get caught up in that. I, I don't want you to even for a minute think that something like high-frequency trading is stealing money from a small investor. 
I would need an entire podcast to explain this, but just let me draw one analogy for you. Let me take you back to the 1800s. In those days, there was a new technology. It was called the telegraph. Now, many industries took advantage of the telegraph to make their business more profitable and to make more money. One of those industries was uh, the, the stock market. There were many um, brokerage houses all across the country in those days. There were, there were branch offices in all these uh, small towns, and they linked themselves with the telegraph. The brokerage accounts put in their own, they paid to put in their own private lines that hooked up them to the main telegraph office and to hook up their branch offices to the exchange offices going from Chicago to New York City. Uh, to this day, full-service brokerage companies, people like Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley, in the industry they are referred to as wire houses. They're called wire houses because they installed their own wires to hook themselves up to the telegraph. They were the high-frequency traders of their day. They took advantage of technology. It's no different than what people are doing today. It's not going to change. We don't need the Department of Injustice uh, to look into it. People will use technology to their advantage, and things will get caught up. It's not a problem. It's not a concern. What the individual investor should be concerned with is the volatility that we're seeing in the markets. First quarter of 2014 has been much more volatile. Um, there's been a lot of heavy days of selling. Uh, we, we have just now seen that the um, earnings for the first quarter have been uh, revised. They've been lowered down to 1%. Previously, people were talking about 6.5% earnings for the first quarter, and now that we're going into earnings season being released, they're saying it's 1%. Uh, that's a drastic change. Uh, it, it, it maybe isn't all related to the cold weather that we've seen. That's what investors should be concerned with. Um, watch to see what happens with earnings announcements over the next couple weeks. This 1% one, one uh, earnings that are now estimating could also be a false flag where they just do that to really lower people's expectations. So then if the, if the earnings come in at one and a half or 2.2%, they can say, oh, it was above expectations. But remember, a month ago they were calling for first quarter earnings to be six and a half percent. As of today, when I record this April 9th, 2014, as we go into earnings being announced, they're saying that we're only going to see a 1% growth for the first quarter of 2014. That, can, that should concern everyone. Don't be afraid of high-frequency trading. Be afraid of lack of earnings. From the Expert Council, this is John Pugliano, Investor of Wealth. Good stuff from John. As always, let's uh, take one more call, and we will wrap up for this uh, Friday call-in show. Hey, Jack. It's Jonathan uh, from Indiana. I'm down here in Florida visiting my snowbird parents. I was driving back to my hotel, and uh, there's a guy on the side of the road, and uh, messing with his tires. So I turn around, stop, and get out, help him out. And in about ten minutes of the search, I couldn't find a spare tire in his sixty thousand dollar Cadillac, and uh, had no clue that new cars don't come with spare tires. So I thought uh, I would leave that comment. Maybe you could talk to your viewers about this comment. And uh, kind of crazy. The industry is leaving spare tires and jacks out. And uh, what's next? You know, like first aid kits without with just a cell phone. So I, I like to think of myself as kind of a smart guy, and I had no clue. So if you could pass this information to your viewers, it's pretty helpful. So thanks again, Jack, for what you do. I really enjoy listening to you. Catch you later, man. Bye. 
Well, it, it, it dumbfounds me that automakers would do this. It's not that new, though. I've got an article here on AOL Autos. I guess that's what AOL that used to be the Internet has now become is a place with some articles, you know. Remember, you've got mail. How long has it been, guys? Do you remember when AOL spammed your real mailbox with, uh, with DVDs or CDs that would make AOL go on your computer? Remember that? And remember, you've got mail, right? Remember that? Okay. Just how quick things move. Anyway, let me read you a little bit of this article. It says, uh, a spare tire used to be standard equipment on a new car. An extra layer of safety. Distressed drivers could count on them to get them out of a jam. But those days are over. Joan Freeman of Waltham, Mass. Learned that the hard way after a blowout. She called AAA to have her flat fixed. Only the technician uh, could not find a donut, but a repair kit for small leaks. Totally useless in the damage of her tire. I would, ne I never ever would have bought a car without a donut, Freeman told CBS Boston. What if this happens when I was alone or it was at night or my granddaughter was in the car with me? Hey, guess what, Grandma? Maybe you should have checked your freaking car. I mean, seriously, I have mixed emotions on this. One, I think it's preposterous. Do you sell somebody a $60,000 car? In this article, it says, Still, when the driver goes to change a flat and finds nothing in the trunk, they risk being stranded, especially in rural areas with shell phone reception is spotty. If you want to lug around a spare, you can get one as an option for an additional $100 to $400. It also says that one of the reasons the auto manufacturers have stopped putting a spare tire in is it reduces the weight of the car, so it increases the miles per gallon. Bullshit! Come on, please! 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 Are you kidding me? Now, it probably does. When they're trying to get the car to meet these new cafe standards, and they're like one-tenth of a, of, a, of a MPG in the gray area from pass and fail, you whip the tire out of there, and then it's, okay, we got over, but it's, it's, it's irrelevant. For those that want to lug around a spare tire? Are you kidding me? Are you absolutely just unbelievable that that's it? Now, let me tell you what I think's happened. A couple things. One, yes, the new miles per gallon standards, if they can shave, you know, a, a, a 20th of an MPG with eliminating some equipment and calling it optional, yeah. I think it's more along the lines of this, though. How much do they have to put in a car now they didn't used to have to put it? You know, they're trying to mandate now... All vehicles, not just SUVs and stuff, all vehicles must have a backup camera. If you keep making them put shit into cars, sooner or later, to be competitive, they're going to start taking things you're not making them put in out. But I bet you the government's going to come to the rescue. This is There's probably going to be a freaking subcommittee meeting in the House of Representatives on this. Grandma was stranded on the road. For God's sakes, her granddaughter could have been in the car. Well, she knows how to change the tire. No, she called Triple A. <laughs> All right, so let's let's here's the real lesson: know what's in your freaking vehicle before you need it. Now, I'm telling you, don't don't have a car without a spare tire. Period. You buy a new car, make sure it comes with a spare tire. If it doesn't, say hey, you guys need to put a tire in, or I'm not buying a car. And watch them shit you a free spare tire. You watch that salesman when all the deal's about to go through and you go, hmm, I read this article on AOL Autos and it says that sometimes you guys don't include a spare tire. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, this car doesn't have one, but uh, for $400, uh-uh. 
give me a free spare tire for the deal we just agreed on. I'm going to go down the road to the next dealership. And like, like a magical farting unicorn rainbow, it will appear, a spare tire descending down into your vehicle. Okay? So make sure your new vehicle, you spend 60 grand on comes with a freaking spare tire. But do you know the number one reason people end up on the side of the road and are not able to fix a flat with their spare tire? It's not because they don't have one. It's because, dun, 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 their spare tire is flat. You need to not just have a spare tire several times a year, call it minimum four. You need to check the air pressure in your spare tire. You need to make sure you can get at it. And make sure if it's like up under your pickup truck or something like that, you've taken it off at least once so you know how it freaking works. And if they put it on with the valve stem on the top where you can't get to it, when you take it off to learn how it works, put it back on with the valve stem pointing down, and then you can get up under there with your tire gauge, check your pressure. Now, you should probably check pressure in the tires on your car at least once a month. Just for fuel economy and, and, and the wear and tear on your tires. Properly inflated tires last longer. Tires are expensive. If you want your tires to last longer and your MPGs to go up, by the way, keep the pressure in your tires right. Basic common sense maintenance. And when you do, lift a little thing in your trunk or get underneath there and check the spare. Because if the spare even feels hard, it could have a slow leak. But if you check it and it's supposed to be running, I don't know, 38 pounds, whatever, and it says 16, <sighs> something's wrong. Hey, so that's number one. Check the spare, make sure it's there, and make sure it has air in it. A flat spare is about as useful as a flat tire that's already on your car. Next thing, donut. I didn't know I didn't have a donut in it. You know what? This is what I would say. Spend the money and put a full-size spare in your vehicle unless there's not room for it. Some vehicles now, there really isn't room for a full-size tire. You don't want to donut on your car. Tires are expensive. They ain't that expensive. And if you run the same tires on your car or your truck consistently, what you do is you take and you have that, that full-size spare with a brand-new tire on it. When you buy new tires, buy three. Take your best-used tire, have them mounted on the spare rim, and move the new tire from the spare to the vehicle. All right, so if you're keeping your vehicles long enough to at least change the tires out once, that's what I would do. Saves a little bit of money, but it makes sure you have a full-size tire now. It also does this. This is the preparedness angle. You have money now. You're buying a car. If you don't have money, don't buy a car. So you can afford the full-size tire. Okay. Now, this is what you do. You put that tire in your truck. You're driving down the road, and you blow out a tire. Now you're in a position in life where you don't have as much money. Okay. Fine, take that expensive tire off your spare rim, put it on your car, replace the tire that you had a blowout with, and get a cheap-ass, full-size used tire from them for like 15 bucks, one that they would probably throw away if you didn't buy it, have them put that on as your spare. Now you still have a full-size spare. Serviceable spare, something that if it was on your car, they'd tell you you're going to need tires in about, you know, 5,000 miles. Plenty good as a spare. All right? So just some thoughts on that. Next thing. Get a good air compressor. Get a good, let me say it one more time. Get a good air compressor for your car. That's not a little plastic one because and it doesn't really work. A good, high-quality vehicle, 12-volt air compressor for your vehicle. It'll probably cost you a few bucks, but it's worth it. And if your tire's not all the way flat and it is holding air, air your tire up enough 
Drive slowly, get your vehicle into a much safer, more convenient spot to deal with your flat, like sometimes that would be driving it to a place where they'll fix it for you. Because I know how to change the tire. I do not want to change the tire at rush hour on the shoulder on LBJ Freeway. I had to do it once on Dallas North Tollway. It was no fun at all. It was quite intimidating. And on the side of the road, in the shoulder, in the tarmac, right? And it's 115 degrees out. Frickin' Jack is sinking into the tarmac. Get yourself a good floor jack. Get yourself a good floor jack for your vehicle so you can jack it up. Get a plug kit. One more time. Get a plug kit. Learn how it works. Most of the time, if you have a flat tire on your vehicle and you haven't had a complete blowout or hit a piece, like I hit a piece of angle iron. And it just blew, I had to change the tire. No, no choice. Because there was like a freaking four inch gap, like somebody sliced it with a knife. Right? So I had to change that tire. But most of the time it's a screw or a nail. If you have an air compressor and a plug kit, you can leave the car right on there, especially if you can find the nail, drive it, roll it so it's like at nine o'clock. Air the tire up to proper, a little bit over proper pressure. Pull the nail out, stick the plug in, trim the plug off. Now, you're supposed to use this as a temporary thing, but I can tell you, my dad was in a tire business for 20 years. He had tires that he plugged, and a guy came back two, three years later with 10,000 miles on that tire, and that plug was still holding. I'm not advising that you do it. I'm just telling you, that's how reliable it is. I remember as a kid him showing me how to tire machine work and breaking down tires. You look inside, and you see a plug. And my dad has one of these weird memories like I do. He goes, oh, yeah, I put a plug in his tire like a year ago. I remember that guy now. That's just how he was. So a, a plug kit and an air compressor, in most instances, are more valuable than a good spare tire and a jack and a lug wrench. Because usually you can get the, the, the car at least drivable without jacking it up and taking the wheel off. Because jacking up a vehicle on a road with cars going jing, 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 and, and assholes blowing the horn at you because you have the, the indecency to have a problem on the road while they want to get home, well, that can be dangerous. You, you don't know. Are you, are you sitting on a nice level spot? At least when I was on the tollway, I was on a level spot. And I was near the toll booth, so people were slowing down to go through the booth. Oh, by the way, some guy stops, pulls over, comes walking back. And I get a vibe he's not here to help, so I've got the lug wrench, right? And he's going to get either a nine iron to the head or a nine between the eyes, you know what I mean? Because I know something's not right. And this fool, this fool, <laughs> I'm changing a tire at 6.30. It's 114 degrees out. I'm on a tollway with cars blowing by. And this guy says, I didn't realize I was on a tollway. You have 50 cents I could borrow? Now, I wanted, and I thought about burying a tire iron in his head. You know what I did? I thought, if you have that much stones, buddy, I reached in the car, I gave him 50 cents, I said, go on about your way. Anyway, these scenarios, you know, if you can pop the hood, clamp your air compressor on a battery, because a good one, that's how it's going to hook up. Okay, got 38 pounds of air there, throw the compressor in the car, drive it to Firestone. You're, or just tires or whatever, you're better off. Or drive it to a parking lot with a nice shady tree and do the work there, 
pull out, you know, a, you keep a mover's blanket is a great thing to keep in your trunk or your kit in your truck. You lay that down, you can sit on that, you don't have gravel in your knees. You can take your time, call your wife or husband or whoever and say, hey, look, I'm going to be a little bit later. I got a flat. I'm going to take care of it. Much better. Much better. So if you buy a new car, you're spending $60,000, tell them to shit a tire if it doesn't come with one. Number two, if you have a spare tire, check the pressure in it. And if it's on a truck where it's up underneath and it's got the valve stem sitting to the top, take it off. You need to know how it comes off anyway. Flip it around so you can make sure you check your tire pressure. Number three, Get a full-size spare, as long as it'll fit in your vehicle, and use it as a redundancy if you have the money to buy a good tire now in case one of your other tires becomes damaged in the future at a time when you're a little more cash-strapped that you can put the cheap-use tire on as a spare. And you've got the good tire to go on with your vehicle. Check your pressure in your main tires. Keep an eye on them. A lot of times, a, a flat comes along this way. Oh, gee, my tire went flat. No, fool, your tire went flat over three and a half weeks. Huh? How does that work? You have a slow leak. And your tire has been low for two weeks. And now it's low enough that you can visually see it. So if you're checking your pressure regularly, you identify a tire with a slow leak in advance. And you can address that issue. It's usually a piece of wire or a nail or a screw. And even though I'm saying I'm not advising you to do it, I'm telling you, I've pulled a nail out of a tire, I've plugged it, and I've forgotten about it at all. And as long as I'm checking my pressure once a month, good. Well, it might not balance right. It might not. And then you might have to fix it. But in most instances, I've not had a problem with it. Rotate your tires. Replace them when they need to be replaced. Keep an eye on the pressure. Get a freaking air compressor. And have knowledge of all the things that you're going to rely on if your car breaks down. Your tools, where they're at, your spare tire, where it's at. I got people, there's a spare tire, where's your jack? I don't know. We're popping the hood, looking under the hood, finally find their jack. Tire iron, oh, I used that the other day. I found that. It was under the seat. Where's it now? I don't know. I can't help you, man. Can't help you. Air compressor plug kit, though. Bang on. Fix the flat. Some people think it doesn't work. Some people think it does. I can tell you it does in some scenarios. It generally will not have enough pressure to inflate a tire to proper pressure, but it will usually seal slow leaks. It will usually at least get a vehicle off the road. And if you have it and an air compressor, a lot of times it will dead fix a problem temporarily anyway. But it's not something I would rely on. It's something I would have as my three is for me. So my, actually my four is even more. I have my, My, you know, one is, one is none is the tires on the car. Uh, two is one, one is none. That's the spare tire. Okay, three, three is for me is an air compressor and a plug kit. And a four is even more is a can of fix a flat. Because, tell you what, it all has purpose and it all has use. Please think about, you know, things like this. I know we're supposed to talk about zombies in the apocalypse, but I bet you in the next 48 hours minimum, you're going to be sitting behind the wheel of a car or in the passenger seat and driving somewhere. And just think to yourself, if the car broke right now and I was stuck here, what would it be like? And you'll probably think no matter what, even if it's not that big a deal, I would want to, I would want to get back on the road as quickly as possible. The next time you're in four lanes of traffic in the middle of the freeway, think about getting a flat there. And having to get the vehicle off the road while cars fly by you at 80 miles an hour. 
and how much would better it would be if it never happened. Or at least if it did, you could quickly and expediently get out of that situation and address the long-term problem somewhere else. That's what preparedness is really all about in all walks of life. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Shut